Hello, and welcome to another virtual author event at the Poison Pen Bookstore. I'm John Charles, and today the Poison Pen is doubly blessed to have with us two best-selling authors and two of our favorite authors, Karen Rose and Hank Felipe Ryan. Karen's new book is Cold-Blooded Liar, and Hank's is The House Guest. Before we begin, I would like to let those listening in know the Poison Pen does have a, still does have a limited number of signed copies of both titles available for purchase. So if you're interested, I would suggest that after hearing their talk today, you immediately go online or give the bookstore a call and we can connect you with one or more of these truly fabulous new thrillers. Now I'd like to welcome Karen Rose and Hank Felipe Ryan. Hey, thank you for inviting us today. This is all about celebrating Karen's new book, Cold-Blooded Liar, which I know, John, you stayed up really late to read, and I did too. I'm very mad at Karen. You know, my my normally um, wrinkle-free face has little bags under the eyes because she makes me stay up way past my bedtime, but it's worth it because she's such a strong storyteller. But right after I finished her book, I started your book, Hank, and it was equally a dilemma because you just don't want to put the book down. It's that good. Thank you. It is really wonderful um, to have our books be in real readers' hands, and they sort of take on a life of their own. I'm, I'm always convinced that the books aren't fully into the world until someone reads them. You know, it's you all reading them that mm -hmm. makes the books be real, makes the characters come to life. So that's always quite a moment. Although Karen, you've been doing this for so long. Does it, do you still love it? I still do. I mean, it, it's different now, you know, it, 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 time changes or experience changes or your brain changes, you know, as you get older. So the experience of writing is different. I still love it. Um, and this is my 20th anniversary year. My first book came out 20 years ago. Oh, congratulations. So yeah, so we're going to be a, being a do, big a big celebration all this year for, for 20 years. And then I look back and I think, wow, you know, it, it, I just never even dreamed 20 years ago that I'd have one book, much less, you know, this many. How many? Well, I'm just about to start writing my 30th, but Cold-Blooded Liar is my 27th. Before we um, launch into a really meaty discussion, I would like to ask both of you to tell us a little bit about your new books, just for those who are not um, familiar with your work. So Karen, why don't we have you tell us about Cold-Blooded Killer first? Well, it's Cold-Blooded Liar. And Cold-Blooded Cold Liar, Liar I'm sorry. It's the first book in my San Diego, well, he's a killer too. So, you know, it, yeah. Yeah, either one's right, but um, the, uh, the San Diego Case File series. And um, this is a little bit of a departure for me because normally what I'll, I do is I'll write books that are set in a city like Chicago or Philadelphia or Sacramento is, you know, in New Orleans is my most recent one. And, you know, I'll have like a, I'll have a work group or a family, the character, main characters are connected in some meaningful way. And when I get through that cast of characters, I pick up and I go on to the next city. And each couple will have their own story. Well, the San Diego Case Files is a little different because Kit, Kit and Sam will be the hero and the heroine of every book. So it's more of a continuing story with Stay in San Diego with them. So I will have, these will be my winter books. And then the, you know, the New Orleans, whatever, you know, the next city is, will be my summer books. So it's an exciting kind of departure for me. It's a little bit of a different book. There's still a lot of murder. So, you know, there's uh, there's consistency there, but um, it, it, Cold-Blooded Liar is the story of Kit McKittrick, who is a homicide detective in San Diego. 
and Sam Reeves, who is a psychologist. And Sam has a, a patient who's been court appointed and he, the, this patient is a, is a pathological liar. And he will talk about everything from, you know, tea with royalty to this wonderful party he went to the night before and the Hollywood actors and actresses he sees and how he taught, you know, a, a Hollywood actor to ride a horse and all of these really, you know, very clear lies that he tells. But every now and again, he sprinkles in there something that Sam thinks is true. And he thinks that this, uh, this, this patient has, um, has committed a murder. And if it was a murder in the past, Sam can't report it. That's, that would be a violation of, of doctor-patient confidentiality. However, if there is a clear and present danger to an existing living person, he has a duty to warn, therefore he must. So he's stuck. You know, do I, if I, is this guy lying or is he telling the truth? Which part of it is a lie? And so he comes up with a plan that uh, find, make, basically embroils him in a murder investigation of a serial killer. And for a little while, um, he's the suspect. And so he has to uh, investigate to clear his own name. And he and Kit end up working together, not necessarily voluntarily together, but they do end up working together through the book. Do you mind if I, if I, if the reporter in me needs to ask a follow-up question before I talk about the house guest? Because I loved this part of your book. Let's hold it up one more time, cold-blooded liar. Because that the, I wonder if, I wonder if that, that wonderful conundrum, that problem of having a therapist um, not be able to tell certain things, um, even if they, um, I mean, they can do it if someone's life is in danger, but not if it's something in the past. And the, that the, those rules, that was such a wonderful moment when you explained why a therapist can do one thing, but not the other. Was that the beginning of this novel or what was, how did this start for you? Well, it, it's something I've always wondered about. My husband was a mental health therapist back in, he stopped doing it back around 98, 99. One of his, one of his clients tried to kill him. And it was the third time it had happened. So it was quite, you know, pretty traumatic, pretty dramatic. And he backed out of, you know, he backed out of that profession. Um, but uh, the, the idea always was, you know, what can you tell and what can you not tell? And he found himself, and, and I hear, I heard about these very peripherally. He would never tell me details, but one day he had been so frustrated because he'd been to court and um, the, the judge was trying to force him to give information he was not allowed to give. And finally, you know, he's like, I can't say it, you know, you, this, this guy, you know, my client says it's okay. And finally the judge turns to the guy and says, it's okay. Right. And finally the, you know, the, the, the defendant was going, yeah, yeah, it's fine. You know, he can tell. And then, then my husband could share what the judge wanted, but it was pretty dicey because, you know, the judge was threatening him with contempt of court and all kinds of very scary things that, you know, and it, it put basically putting him in an, uh, an, an untenable position. So it was something that, uh, that never murder, but certainly, you know, my husband, um, my husband uh, counseled many court ordered clients that were, had been arrested for sex offenses. And so, you know, the things he heard were not necessarily things he could say, but, you know, the, especially if the client didn't get permission and most of the time they didn't. I mean, interestingly, um, as you as you say in the book, it's such a slippery slope because once you make that step, then no client will ever trust you again. Right, right, exactly. And the 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 there is a benchmark case, 
And when I started talking about it with my husband, he's, oh yeah, yeah, we studied that. We studied that when I was in, in, in graduate school and it happened in California. There was uh, a young, it was a student, a young man had gone to his, like his, his counselor, his on-campus counselor with fantasies of killing his girlfriend who was easily identifiable, you know, mm-hmm. as another student on campus. And the counselor didn't do anything with it, you know, confidentiality. And then this, the, the client went out and killed his girlfriend. And the parents sued the school and won. And that was what uh, was the kind of the landmark decision in this duty to warn. So if there is a clear and present danger to an existing person, a person who is alive now, you have a duty to warn. And so that's the, that's the slippery slope Sam finds himself. And, you know, and I did, I, I, I did research and heard a lot of, you know, there's a lot of online research with psychologists talking, you know, podcasts and those kind of things. And a common thread was, you know, what if we were in this situation? This is a, this is something we always hope we never have to face because it is such a slippery slope. And especially in this book, I'll just follow up one more time, especially in this book, when the character is a cold-blooded liar. And so your, your character, Sam, doesn't know, is this, a, is this another lie? And would it be worth it for me to tell when it turns out not to be true? Then people, then the police won't trust me either. It's the boy who cried wolf at that point. Exactly. And Sam is a, he's just a decent person. He is just his, he's decent, he's sincere, he's nice. He's just a very nice person. And he finds himself in a dilemma because he truly wants to help people. And uh, this is kind of not what he signed up for, but it's, it's the situation he finds himself in. It was, it's really, didn't you think, John, it was really fascinating that, that dilemma. Yeah, I think it's, um, you'll also, you think about like other professions, like um, religious professions where somebody confesses and they're not allowed to say anything to the police because the person that is privy to that information, really, they're torn. I mean, if they do the right thing one way, they help somebody. If they don't, then they help somebody else. It's, um, it was fiendishly clever, Karen. You really found a good way to twist that plot tension up. Well, thank you. I like being fiendish. <laughs> I know you do. I know you do. You talked to your husband to make it be super authentic. I did. I did. And and some of the laws have, some of the, the guidelines, the policies have changed in the 20 some years since he's been in practice, but um, a, a lot of the basics were the same. So, you know, I started with him. It came up on a car ride. We were driving home from somewhere and one of our little eight hour car rides that we, we take. And, and I, you know, I have this idea for a new series and I started running a pass and he goes, yeah, that's, that's a horrible situation to be in. Kind of reminisced about some of the situations where he was forced to tell and couldn't and and how powerless he felt so when you first meet sam he feels powerless he just doesn't he doesn't know what to do he hopes he's done the right thing and i love that how you reassure us in the book that he's a good guy he's a clark kent kind of guy he's a straight shooter kind of guy but still there are moments when we think really maybe i mean so your sleight of hand throughout this book kept me really turning the pages was that fun to do was and you know and and we both written a lot of books you know you know that some of them are like pulling teeth without novocaine and huh. some of them just flow like water and this one was a gift you know I started it and I think I finished this book in I mean, it took a little bit more than three weeks between three and four no. weeks. and it just, it just like water I do not want to hear I do not want to hear that it took some you of time. them take like a year 
And some of them just flow like water and those are the gifts. So, you know, you have to kind of bite your, you know, you bite down and bury your way through the ones that are the, the, the root canals without Novocaine. And, and then <laughs> because you know, sooner or later, you're going to get that gift again. And that gift is, there's just a high, you know, when you, when you're, when you're in the zone and it's all the words are coming and everything's fitting together perfectly. Um, that's, that is, that's the experience we all want, you know? And, you know, you can't, and I, and John, I wonder if you hear this from other authors as well. You can't make that gift come. Okay. You have to sort of receive it or be open to it when the time comes. Yep. Yep. I think, yeah, many authors do. I mean, it's welcome when it comes, but I guess what I hear sometimes, and you might disagree or agree, is that if you really want to be a writer, you can't always wait for the gift. You have to oh, actually... No. Because so many of them are the root canals without Novocaine. Yeah. And then when you're done, it is truly like giving birth. You're like, wow, that was awful. I think I'll do it again. <laughs> what, is that? what is that crazy confidence of being a, an author that you you want to do that again? And I also think that on my, on my bad writing days, you know, I'll think, I'll write a sentence and I'll think, oh, that's the worst sentence that anyone has ever written in their entire life. And then I say, yes, it is. And now just write another one because you can fix it later. And I do think that there's a magic of editing where you your subconscious brain is working and yes. putting things in that you didn't know. I mean, I wonder if that happened to you with Cold-Blooded Liar, that when you went back to read it again, you saw things that you didn't know were even there. Yeah, I think this, like I said, this one was like water. It, it, it just flowed out. And there weren't so many of there weren't so many of the big aha moments because I was there I was there all along you know um, it, it, sometimes it feels almost like you're doing whitewater rafting and you take a nap and then all of a sudden you wake up and then oh here we are <laughs> this one it was it again it was this one was a gift so and I was really grateful for it but and then there are others where I'm like oh that's why that happened back then that all makes sense. And that's nice too. That that's really nice too. That's a I, lot of fun. To your point, John, I was reading somewhere that someone said, "The muse only comes when you're working," and that's I think true. that's really a good thought. So you know, you just keep you just keep going. And that's the house guest. I thought the house guest was going to kill me. Um, all so the way. It was more Novocaine or? Well, you know, I don't ever have an outline, so I don't know what's going to happen. And so there's this precipice that you you know you type chapter one and you have kind of a little germ of a good idea like Karen's conundrum with the with the confidentiality and you think well let's see what we can make of this and so some days you know you just it's like going and it's great and the house guest is I thought it was wonderful and then some days I thought why am I writing this I'm the worst author there's ever been um, and you know as a as a person who doesn't plot at some point you have to figure out who did it and what what the, what it's all about. And when I got to the end of the house cast about seven eighths of the way through, I thought, well, you better figure this out sister. Um, because I wondered if I had created a, a plot that I couldn't have an answer to, a, a mystery that I couldn't solve, a crime that I couldn't solve. Um, and that was a problem. And when I when I figured out the end of the house guest, I was sitting here right here in my office and I stood up and applauded. I'm like, yes, I've got this. I figured this out. And I was so happy. And it made the rest of the book just fall into place. And it's, you know, this is a 
writing novels, telling stories like Karen does and like I attempt to do um, is so full of joy when it works. It's, it's quite amazing. That's and amazing. I have to say that the whole writing without, a, without an outline, that is a gift too, because if I tried that, I would, I would be so stressed out. Really? So you do have an outline? I have an outline then I usually digress from about two thirds of the way through. And then I have to figure out how to get back to where, you know, to where I, to, how to get back, how to make my end fit yes. where yes. I got stuck. But no, I've got, I definitely, I know who did it. If I didn't know who did it, oh my goodness, I would be able to sleep at night. Welcome to my world. Yes, that's absolutely true. I think though, after having been, I've been a television reporter for 43 years. And I don't know the end of my stories while I'm working on them because they wouldn't be new, right? I'm looking for something. I'm looking for a story that's new. I'm in search of a story. And I think that's sort of why my brain works that way in writing novels is I'm, I'm, in, search of, I'm in search of what the story is. So I'm less afraid than I, than I might have been. Should I quickly tell you about the house guest? Yeah, um, give okay. readers a, a taste of what the story's about. Well, it's interesting because I want to say it's a thriller. I can't tell you. So never mind. <laughs> um, but there was this thing on Facebook and I, uh, Twitter and Facebook that I wonder if you saw that said, describe your book in five words, just five words. So the house guest in five words is greed, gaslighting, betrayal, sisterhood, and revenge. Greed, gaslighting, betrayal, sisterhood, and revenge. And then there was a thing on Facebook that said, can you describe your book in five phrases? So, okay. So, so the house guest in five phrases is a gorgeous house on Cape Cod, a shocking and gaslighting divorce, a sympathetic FBI agent, a brand new best friend, and an emerald necklace. So it's two smart women facing off in a high stakes psychological cat and mouse game to prove their truth about a devastating betrayal. But which character is the cat and which character is the mouse? So I call the house guest um, Gaslight meets Thelma and Louise meets Strangers on a Train. And that is the house guest. What I thought was so um, clever of you, Hank, was you take something that a lot of people have an experience with is when somebody gets a divorce, it's who gets the friends and you spin yes. it into a story. Well, that's so interesting. Yes, because that does happen, doesn't it? And mm -hmm. so what I decided the story would be about would be in a shocking divorce, one spouse gets all the friends, but what does the other get? If they're smart, they get the benefits. Mm -hmm. So you can't always get what you want, but sometimes you get what you deserve. And that's what I mean. You're so right, John, because when we're this is a, this is a story that opens with Alyssa McCallan, the main character, heartbroken, alone and terrified because her manipulative husband seems to be trying to ruin her life. And then when uh, when the FBI shows up at her door, she realizes she really needs a friend and then she gets one a seductive new friend who seems to be running from a dangerous man of her own. And they decide that maybe they can solve each other's problems. But, and, but it's not strangers on a train and it's not Gaslight and it's not Thelma and Louise, but it's a little bit of each of those put together. That's great. I do have a question for both of you um, as writers. 
what you both do is illustrate the importance in suspense and thriller novels of the villain, because I think all too often they're kind of treated as a stock figure and it's just the plot that drives things. Can you talk a little bit about why you think villains need to be three-dimensional? Well, Karen, you're the queen of that. Go ahead. Um, well, I think they have to be three-dimensional because otherwise it, it, they, it just becomes a cartoon. You know, mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, you get your snidely whiplash twirling his mustache and, and that doesn't, I don't, that does not for me make for a pleasant reading experience. Um, I like, I like a villain who has a vulnerability. I like a villain who, um, I like a villain who's really smart and the, the, the villain has to be, they are the most important character in the suspense because if they weren't doing their villainy things, nobody else would show up to the party to try to stop them. So their motivation, their, um, their emotions, their, um, their everything has to be compelling. Um, and it, and it really just has to, it has to be strong enough to carry the whole book. So it, in order for that to happen, they have to be real people. They have to be real people that have, and when I start a book, that whole chapter one, that blinking cursor you, it always frightened me. So what I, I would start with is um, character profiles. I do the hero, the heroine, and the villain. And each one gets a profile. You know, who, who are they? Where do they grow up? Who are their friends and family? Who are their work? Uh, you know, who are, who, who's their, who are their work partners? You know, it, it, whatever business they're in. And the villain has those too. The villain, he didn't hatch from an egg. He has a family. You know, the family will have some impact on him. Um, maybe all of the impact on him. And so, you know, I've written, I've written characters where I knew the villain the best of all when I started. And then I've had a few where they surprised me along the way and they developed, you know, they, they developed even more. But yeah, that making them real people and making the victims they kill very real people makes a villain more three-dimensional because if you if you have connected somehow with the victim even if it's just a paragraph on a page if you've connected with the victim then you find the villain's act actions all the more um repelling terrifying you know oh this could happen to me kind of thing I love that this could happen to me kind of thing, because I think, you know, I write psychological thrillers and it's all about the devastation that we do to each other with manipulation and gaslighting and deception and uh, mind games and mind games are so deadly. And I think you're to your point, John, about the villainy um, in real life, everyone wants something and everyone decides how far they'll go to get the thing. And when there are two clashing desires, when one person wants something and the other person wants exactly the opposite thing for exactly the opposite reasons, but reasons that are just as important to them and just as powerful to them, and then those two things come in conflict. So that's what makes a story. That conflict makes the story. And when we decide as authors who our main character is, who our, one of our point of view characters is, the main character, the protagonist, the, the quote, quote, good guy, that person's wants and desires and needs and passion, that becomes what, what, who, we, who we line up with, who we sign up with, who we're on the train with. We, we want what Alyssa McAllen wants. And everybody who's trying to stop that is bad, is a villain. 
So the question is, are they really bad or do they just want what they want? And maybe Alyssa um, has some problems of her own. So um, I, I love when you don't exactly know that there is one bad guy, that maybe my main character is wrong about who the bad guy is. Maybe he or she isn't bad, or maybe the good guys aren't so good. So in my novels, no one is quite who they seem. And we assume because you're on the train with the main character that she's right, that she's the one who's good and she's the one who's right. And probably she is, but she might not be. And that's sort of the fun of the story is um, realistic motivations, realistic desires, you know, relatable emotions, and then clashing, uh, clashing desires at the end. Um, and that and that's when that all crashed together. I mean, Dennis Lehane used to say a story is take some interesting people and put them in a room and let them just crash into each other. And I, I love that. I love that in a story. So that's why my books are cat and mouse games. Which character is the cat and which character is the mouse? Because it could really go either way. Could any of that relate, um, Hank, back to your love of Golden Age mysteries? the idea that you want to keep the killer not clear until the end of the book. Well, you know, they, I, and I wonder if Karen agrees with this. I, I'm really careful that the books are, that my books are fair, that everything that you need to know to figure out what's really going on is there, is clearly there, is not hidden. It is in absolute plain sight if you, if you notice it. But if you don't notice it, and if you make assumptions as readers do about how something is, then then you'll then you'll miss it. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget reading uh, when I was like twelve, Murder on the Orient Express, and I I remember I still get goosebumps. I remember gasping and saying, "How did she do that? I never would have thought of that." It's completely fair and it's completely realistic, but it it it's just so clever. And I really wondered whether I could actually write a novel, a story that would be so satisfyingly fair at the end. And that's what I tried to do in The House Guest and in all my books is when you close the book, you think, oh yeah, I should have seen that. I should have seen that that's how the world is, but she fooled me. And Karen, our readers are smart. I mean, yeah. they're, gonna, they're going to try to figure it out before we do, before we tell them. And so we need to stay one, two, three steps ahead of them, don't you think? Yeah, and I think that the that's why it's important for the villain to be smart, because the and I was like that too. You know, I could I before I wrote thrillers, um, I was very much I'd I watch a movie, I'd read a book, and I try to guess. I it, for me it was a game. I would guess, you know, who was the thriller? I mean, who was the killer? I can name that killer in you know in two chapters or you know in twenty minutes. I could you know by that point I and and we would make guesses. The family would make guesses. Who is it? Who is it? And um, the, the thing that I learned, in, and we were talking about this before we started, was um, I did not start out writing thrillers. I started out writing women's fiction. And it was my first agent who said, you've got a suspenseful voice. Have you ever thought about writing suspense? And I hadn't. And I wasn't sure how, but I, I was, you know, I was an engineer. So I decided I was going to reverse engineer the process. And I took a book that had surprised me. And it was Tammy Hoag's... Um, and I think it was Ashes to Ashes. It was either Ashes, there, there were two, there, and the sequel was Dust to Dust, but I think it was the first one. And um, I, I didn't read it backwards word for word. I read it backwards chapter for chapter. 
because she'd surprised me in the end. I'm like, no way the killer couldn't be that person. And when I, I, where did she hide the clues? How did she hide this from me? And it was when I got to the, back to the very beginning, saw where she laid out the clues. It was fair. They were all there. They were all there in plain sight. And the trick was I had forgotten to look for them because I was so tied up in the story. I was so invested in the characters and are they going to, are they going to, well, you know, you know, they're going to make it through it. There's some contractual obligation of an author, you know, in writing certain kinds of books that the main characters are going to make it to the end. Um, but how are they going to do it? You know, who's going to die along the way? And once I realized where all the clues were, they were all there in plain sight. I, I just stopped looking. And there's no. another, the other one that does that for me is Michael Connelly. And I love to, I love to listen to audiobooks because I have a really bad habit of peeking to see. And I'm, I'm, I'm very, very bad at that. I can't stand it. No, um, no. Let me, let me tell you that um, I did a whole TEDx talk, which the title of which is sometimes I read the ends of books first. I do. I have to tell you, I mean, don't read, don't do it with Karen's. Don't read, don't do it with cold-blooded liar. Although you won't really know what happens if you read the last page. You, you wouldn't really know. And that's one of the joys of your books um, because it goes on a little bit in a, in a gorgeous, tantalizing way. But if, if you read, and don't do it with my book either, just don't do it. But as an author, if you can deconstruct, if you read, I read the first chapter, then I read the last chapter. Then I go to the beginning again and start from the first chapter and I see how they're doing it. I can understand here, oh, that meant that and that meant that. And this is where she's he or she is setting up the dominoes of this story to fall. And I, you know, I never read books twice. And I do think that that's kind of too bad from an author's standpoint that we have, there are so many clues and so much great stuff in the books that so many of us write that I think readers who are going, who are reading it so fast, like we do with yours, um, saying, I can't wait to see what's going to happen. I can't wait to see what's going to happen. Miss some of that gorgeous construction um, and some of the, some of the, the bricks that are laid throughout because we're just reading as fast as we can. So you get that with audiobooks too, because you, on audiobooks, you can't control. Yeah. Because somebody else is reading too. And so I, I, I think I read, I listened to probably the first 10 Michael Connolly books when I was doing a lot of work and I was driving back and forth across Florida. And I can remember getting to the end of the book and going, wait, that's not possible. And then I would, but well, I, I do read books again. Sometimes I'll read them, but books that I know who the killer is, but for the enjoyment of the ride. I will read them again and again. And, you know, with, with Connolly's books, I've done that. You know, and there have been several authors. Well, I'll go back and I'll read. I know how it ends. I remember how every book ends, you know, but, uh, you know, it, it's just lovely to take that ride again. And then you notice all the little things. Yes, I agree. It is, I agree. It is so educational and so revealing to look to read them again. Uh, because you do you do see some of the underpinnings and some of the structure and some of the intent intention uh, of the author. I have to tell you that I, I, I relate so much to you trying to figure out the ending. My husband and I watch crime shows together or thriller shows together, and I'm always guessing. I'm like, it's the sister. She's going to drown. She's pregnant. And Jonathan will say, can't you just watch it? And I say, no, I, I can't just watch it. I think it started when I when I would watch uh, Perry Mason with my father when I was a little kid 
and there's a, you know, there's a music, there's a rhythm to those Perry Mason shows. And it was never person A, and it was never person B, but it was person C, you know, the first person that they, and you learn about that story structure and you learn about suspense and you learn about how to reveal the real story. And, it, you know, all those things were so formative. It's true. Yeah. And I, Mark, my husband and I have been watching the old murder she wrote. Oh. And we start you back, and they're fun. You know, they're just fun. They're not, you know, it's not the edge of your seat kind of thrillers. Which, honestly, those give me nightmares. Um, I prefer to, you know, if I'm going to sit down and I'm going to watch a thriller, um, that it's there's some there is structure to it, and I can guess. Oh, it might be. And and we we, we have a game of it. You know, we each pick. You know, who we think it is, and and you know who who wins at the end is is the person who's guessed. I know, no, it's so totally bragging rights. I wonder if either of you have seen Poker Face on I TV. love that show. That is an and, amazing show. Yes, I agree. And John, you should watch because, and I wonder if Karen thinks the same way, because we know who did it at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And the story is about finding out. And that's exactly what we're talking about, about reading books backwards. And in a lot of my books, you know who the bad guy is because the reader has the, 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 the villain, not in Cold-Blooded Liar, but in most of my books, a villain has a point of view. And you might know from the very first chapter who it is. You might know who, who it is with relation to the main characters, but you might not know why. And you're not going to know how they're going to bring, bring them down. It's um, all about the chase and the, and the capture the mm -hmm. and the mind and the, and the, you know, the wise, careful, clever, lucky, persistent, determined. I wonder if, you know, you've been writing books for such a long time. And this is, you know, this is pretty much, a, you know, in the best sense of the word, a wonderful procedural of tracking down the serial killer. How has that writing a procedural like that changed over the years with the things that law enforcement? The oh, so many changes. So many changes. I'm going to go back and I look at my, my first book and gosh, I think they had cell phones. I think. Uh -huh. I, mean, I don't think the heroine did because she was really poor. And, you know, back then the cell phones were expensive and, and you had to pay for minutes and, you know, kids today, they're like, what? Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, the, the DNA, DNA testing took, um, if you were lucky, you'd get it back in a week, you know, if you rushed it and because that's just how long it took. And now it's, you know, so much faster than that. Um, the, 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 many of the, um, many of the forensic, things that many of the forensic um, procedures that CS, the, C, the, the crime, crime scene unit will do are, are new. And I've subscribed, to, uh, I've subscribed to a newsletter that talks a lot about, in fact, I think in just about everyone that comes through, it's a forensic one. And it talks about how um, they call it um, genetic genealogy, basically using 23andMe kind of databases to identify cold cases and come up with a killer. Mm -hmm. And these are fascinating to me. So the, 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 the advances in science are extremely fascinating and it's fun to figure out how to incorporate those, you know, kind of into the world as, as the world changes. It's uh, fun too, because, as, you know, it's, it's as, you. As, a, as an author though, we have to understand that Someone's going to say, isn't there, isn't there surveillance? Why didn't you just Google him? Doesn't he have a ring doorbell? I mean, all those kinds of things that, you know, I tell my students, you can have one dead cell phone battery in your entire, all in all of your books, you get one time. But you, we do have to deal with, and I deal with it in the house guest, 
a home alarm, a surveillance system, you know, video cameras, uh, cell phone usage, speaker phones, Bluetooth, all those kinds of things. We have to know about it in order to deal with um, you know, making it not work or intercepting it or interrupting it for better or for worse so that people don't say, well, why didn't they just do DNA? That'd be so easy. We have to we have to know about it. it, it. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, even with all of the science that we have, um, we we spend uh, we spend our summers in Northern California, um, way up, like be, between San Francisco and the Oregon border, and there are huge, like an hour track on the on the highway where we get no cell phone service. We don't get cell phone service where we live. We we have Wi-Fi, and so that's how we make phone calls. But we have, we, we walk out of our house and there's no cell phone service, you know, and um, I set, I set one of my series, uh, the, the final book is in the, the, um, the wilderness, you know, up by Lassen National Park. There's, I mean, you could be lost there. You could, you could have a body that couldn't, wouldn't be found for months with all the, you know, the crevices and the ravines and, and places that, you know, everybody's like, oh, well, you know, with satellites, well, 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 there's places in this world where that justice doesn't work. And then there are weird places where it does. You know, I was on a, a photo safari in, in South Africa in the middle of the bush and I had five bars. I had, a, I had a Facebook conversation with my daughter who had to go to the emergency room. She was fine, but it was her first time in the emergency room alone. And I'm sitting, you know, there's giraffes all around me and I'm sitting there talking to my daughter. And then I come to my house in Northern California and I don't have a cell phone signal. So making those kinds of um, situations believable to the readers. Well, well, why don't they just, well, there are places where those don't exist still to this day. Finding well, paid. It's really hard. If you need to find a payphone, that's a really hard thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you think, though, that as authors, um, technology can be a double-edged sword? The, all the modern advances can make it more challenging for you to plot something out. But also there's new opportunities because I keep thinking about this whole idea of how they're able, and I don't know the ex exact terms because I'm terrible at technology, but how they can dupe you into thinking someone's doing something on a video and it's not that person. Mm -hmm. Sure, oh, deep fake, deep fake. Yeah, video. that's it. Yeah, deep fake. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty terrifying. When you think about the possibilities, you know, used for evil and not good. And I don't think, I think a lot of people are going to use it for evil. And, you know, the things like uh, 3D printing, the mm. things you can print with 3D printing, license plates, guns, you know, the technology is really frightening. And it, but in some ways you have to become, you have to become more devious. You know, how do I make, how do I make, this doesn't make sense because they could have just used a cell phone or they could have just, why didn't they? And when I hit those points, that's when, that's when sometimes the twists happen. What yes. makes it make sense? Well, exactly. what makes sense is the twist. Exactly. You have to, um, it's one of those, it's a thing where you take that challenge of that there would be surveillance video, there would be an alarm system, there would be a code that you need, and you and your brain says, okay, how can I get around this? Um, and that makes the story even better. In the house guest, for instance, Alyssa is home at home alone in her beautiful big mansion that is about to get taken away from her. 
and she knows that her husband, she fears that her husband is sneaking in to gaslight her because he or someone has ripped a dress off of a hanger and left it on the floor, left, left a glistening kitchen knife on the floor of the dining room, that kind of thing. And she knows that there is a surveillance system in their home and an alarm system, but he has the codes for it. And if she changes them, he can just change them back. So she has to do something else to, to give her the clues to allow her to know that her husband has been there. And so that thing that she figures out is one of the twists of the story. And it was fun for me to be able to figure out how she could get around how her husband, although he wasn't there, had control of the thing that was supposed to keep her safe. And it was fun to think about. Can we take a minute for both of you just to talk a little bit from the author's perspective about series? Because Karen, this is the launch of a new series for you. Um, you've written other books and series. Hank, you've written a number of series. What are the advantages for an author to a series? Are there any disadvantages? Do you always know how long it's going to run? Um, well, the advantage is that you have like a, you, you, you build a community okay. and those characters bolster each other. Those characters can be used to introduce the new characters. Um, if, especially if they've known each other for a while, that helps back storytelling. Make, makes it a lot more easy, a lot more, lot easier. Um, and if there is an overarching story, the series helps you move it along, you know, book for book. And I've done a few of those. Most of them are standalones within the series, but I've done a few series where they are a lot more interconnected than, than others have been. Um, but I do love, I, I do love the, 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 the made family situation where, you know, you have a group of friends and they just keep getting bigger. And so each person needs to have their own book. So I might have planned for four books and I end up with six or, you know, more, you know, if I, if I go back and, and, and write more. So I do love series and that I think it, it builds community and it builds family and especially family that's made family. And people, I think people like that. That's a, that's a, it's a very comforting place to be because you can still, you still have all these crimes, but there's a certain amount of what's known and that what's known is the community. It's, it's an interesting differentiation because in a series, you do have the world. I wrote the Charlie McNally series and the Jane Ryland series. And in those books, you do have their world and the, and the, and their job and their goals and their friends. But the challenge in a series is that the main character is not going to die. I mean, Jane Ryland is not going to die in The Wrong Girl because she comes back in the next book and you know that she's not gonna die in book five because she'll come back in book six. So the reader knows that the tension in a series novel cannot come from the mortality of the main character because the series is built on the, on the adventures of this main character and you read a, a book in a series to read what the next adventure that the character you love will take. But, but you know they're not gonna die. So that the high stakes in a series novel has to come from something other than the mortality of the main character. In a standalone, the power of a standalone, I've written, I think, five standalones now, and the house guest is a, is a standalone, of course. Um, in a standalone, the power of a standalone is that anything can happen. The reader's expectations are zero because they have no idea what I'm about to do in the house guest or in any of the standalones. 
anyone can be good, anyone can be bad, anyone could start out bad and turn into being good, anybody can turn, start out good and turn into being bad, anybody can be lying, anybody can be guilty, and anyone can die. Anyone can die. So it is absolutely no holds barred in a standalone because you know as readers that this is the most interesting, coolest, most suspenseful thing that has ever happened to these people. And you will never see them again because all you need to know about them is this book. And that's, that's the fun, that's the power of a standalone. I always think, okay, you all, watch me, watch what I'm gonna do, I'm going to surprise you. And I, I love the power of a standalone. But I also thought, Karen, in Cold-Blooded Liar, I thought the end, and I'm not going to talk about what happens in the end, but how you crafted the end just had me saying, well, I want the next book. I want to see what's going to happen. You, you tee it up so fairly. I mean, the story is finished. There's a cohesive beginning, middle, and end mystery that's solved. We know all the answers. The loose ends are tied up. But then you just open the door to, to the next book. And I, and I thought, I mean, kudos for that. I thought you did that so gorgeously. Well, Was thank you. And, and, and the thing with writing a series is you have to write it in a way that everybody knows there's going to be another book. So, you know, it, it's, it, you can't tie off, you have to tie off enough loose ends to be satisfying, but not so many loose ends that there's not room for another book. And series that are set around a, a group of friends or a group of coworkers, that lends itself well to that because you know the next person is going to get their own book. Um, but uh, it, in, a, in the beginning of a series like this, my, 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 when it, it wasn't a fear and it wasn't a concern. It was an awareness that when I got to the end, I had to have it, I had to set it up so that everybody knew that they were going to get another book, that these two are going to get another chance to work together. They're going to get, you know, they're going to get more, they're going to get more face time together so that their relationship will bloom a little more slowly than in, in, in my other kinds of books. I mean, you can, you can close the plot loops, but yeah. you don't need to close the emotional loops, exactly. um, just like life. And that's what makes the book so compelling. And, if you, and, and for folks who are writing, you know, if you're, if you're listening and you're, you're and you're writing, um, a series that is connected, like where the 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 um, the plot is connected. There's an overarching plot. Um, that's something that I learned the hard way that you really have to be careful with. Because the first time I did it, I had not intended to write a series. I wrote a book, and um, it was called Die for Me. And the there was one character who was supposed to be a walk-on, walk-off character. And he took on this life of his own. And all of a sudden there was a mystery. And that at the end of it, he's holding evidence for this new mystery. And I thought, wow, I have to write his book to find out what that mystery is. But when I finally got to the, the last book in the series, I realized I had not thought far enough ahead because I hadn't planned it. And because I hadn't planned it, I ended up with all these loose ends that had to be tied off in the last, last book and in doing, it was really difficult in doing it. Um, I answered a lot of questions. I think subconsciously I had laid, laid it all out to come together in the last book, but it was pretty stressful because I'm like, okay, now how do I explain this? And how do I explain that? So the next time I did it, I sat down and I said, this is, these are the important plot points that are going to happen in every book. So if you do a series that's just a series of standalones, 
um, the worst thing you have to do is figure out who's not going to die, you know, in each of the books, because, or who's going to get their own book next. But if you write a series with an overarching uh, plot line, like the Sacramento series had uh, a cult, mm -hmm. it was the cult that was, you know, each book, you learn a little bit more about the cult and each book, you get a little closer to closing it down and to defeating it. Um, that I had to plot out you know, what was going to happen in each book, um, which in some ways takes a little bit of the fun out of it, but in some ways makes me a lot less stressed out while I'm writing it. So there are benefits to both. And there are benefits to standalones. Um, I just, I don't think I've ever written a standalone that was not part of a more of, of a larger group. So I, 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 I would be, I like, I like the hominess of having the group of friends or the group of coworkers or the family. Uh, that's just something that I've, I've always, that's just the way I've, I've always written, but I do enjoy reading standalones because they have a, they have a, a magic and a charm of their own. Can I ask both of you to broaden the lens to borrow from Hank's world a bit um, about the appeal of the suspense and thriller genre to you as a writers, as writers, because I find it fascinating that Karen, you write these incredibly chilling books, and yet you're not someone who likes dark, scary, intense stories. And Hank, you write suspense and thrillers, yet in the real world, you don't like to be surprised. So <laughs> talk about why you were drawn to this genre. I, I always read mysteries. You know, that was, you know, we talked before we got started, we talked about Agatha Christie, and I think we all cut our teeth on a specific set of writers, um, just as readers, you know, coming up through the, coming up through the, the through, through our own personal development. Um, but the, um, I think that, oh my Lord, I've gotten completely off. Now I've forgotten what the question was. Why, why do you like suspense? Why do you write suspense? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I like, one of the reasons I like it is it's a game. And it was always a game. That's where I was going with this. Agatha Christie was always a game. Mm -hmm. You know, it was who's who is it? You know, can I guess it before the end? Will I be right when I guess it? Um, but as I started writing, I realized, and and again, it, some of this came with age too, is that the world is not a fair place. You know, bad guys don't always lose in the end. Sometimes good people lose, good people lose their lives, good people lose their livelihoods, you know, and the bad guys don't always get punished. And I think one of the, 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 one of the things I really like about reading thrillers and writing them is that in my world, the bad guys always get punished. There is a, there's a, a satisfaction there that I don't get from real life. And, and, you know, the, the, all the horror stories that we hear on the news, the, the, the children who are, abused and killed and things like that those those and many times their killers are never punished or they're never punished enough you know what is what is and what is being punished enough but I really do like thrillers from an emotional standpoint because it gives me the satisfaction of knowing that in my world the bad guy gets his and gets his in the end and I, I can maintain that kind of a puzzle that kind of a game is how is it all going to come together but in the end I always know bad guys get it bad guys get what's coming to them. I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, we grew up reading the same books, Nancy Drew and Trixie Belden, and then moved on to, I moved on to Agatha Christie and um, all the golden age mysteries. Loved that. And I agree with you, Karen. I loved 
the puzzle element of it. I loved trying to figure it out. I was always a really curious little girl and I would ask my mother questions and she would say, and I remembered this so clearly, she would say, why don't you go find out? Why don't you go see if you can find the answer? Come back in 10 minutes and tell me what you discovered. And she really let me um, blossom into a person who was confident about being able to find something out, being able to figure something out. And my stepfather was a kind of a brilliant um, corporate lawyer. And he would do exactly the same thing. He would set, set up a problem and say, what might happen? What might the other person say? What might the other side say? What might, the, what might be another way that this could work? What might be another explanation? Um, so I began to try to look at the world, not just through my point of view, but what would the other person say? What might really be happening? What might I be missing? What could be a, what could be a, what could be a different story? Then as a television reporter, that's my entire life as a television reporter, is following leads and tracking down clues and trying to find the answers. So, you know, writing suspense, I never thought about, I mean, forgive me for this, but someone asked me once if I could write uh, a thriller without romance. And I said, well, no, because there are real people in my thrillers. And so whether it's people who are in love with someone or wish they were or used to be or are thwarted in love, people have relationships in real life, even in a thriller. So no, I couldn't write a thriller without romance. But then they said, could you write a romance without murder? And I said, what would the people do for four <laughs> for 400 pages if they didn't have a mystery to solve, which is why I don't write romance, because obviously the brilliant romance writers have figured out what people can do for 400 pages if nobody dies. But I, I do think that uh, it's just like writing an investigative story for television that I've been doing for years. It's just that now I get to make stuff up. And as Karen says, my books are about, my books are about justice. And justice isn't just about justice in a courtroom. There's emotional justice and personal justice um, and even revenge justice. And what justice means to each of my characters is different. But I think all of us who are reading crime fiction are, are looking for justice and how the justice system works, whether it's the court of public opinion or a real court, or how lawyers work, or how laws work, and how the system, our system of laws protects the innocent and the guilty at the same time, and how jurors are only human beings, and what happens at the end of a trial. All those kinds of things have always fascinated me. My husband is a criminal defense attorney, mm -hmm. so I have seen you know, so many cases, so many devastating cases from all sides um, and sometimes even when he's working on a case, he comes to me and say, says, if you were writing a novel about this, how would you have had this happen? Because he's, he's searching for another way that an event could have occurred. So, I mean, our imaginations are so um, lovely. We're the only, you know, human beings are the only creatures who can create a story out of nothing. And so in our search for justice and our search for you know, I don't want to say closure, but in our search for justice and our search for truth, if I can be kind of hoity-toity about it, a search for truth, what is truth? Um, and that's what I write in my books. I mean, they're murder mysteries, they're thrillers, they're page turners, just like Karen's are. Um, but underlying that is our need for truth and justice. I think that's inevitable. You both have been writing for a number of years. Karen, congratulations on 20 years this year. Um, 
before we run out of time and we're rapidly approaching that point, one question I'd like you both to kind of um, ponder and address is, what has surprised you the most about publishing the change, or has there been any change for you? Hmm, well, that's a broad question. Um, I think, I mean, clearly there have been technological changes in publishing. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, it's made everything easier. I mean, I can still remember running to the FedEx store to, you know, with a manuscript this big yeah, to, yeah. To, to get it into, into New York the, the the next day. I knew somebody who got on a plane to take oh, her manuscript to New York, yeah. so it wouldn't so her, it wouldn't be late. Um, and clearly, we don't have to do that anymore. But I think that publishing has changed in so many ways, just because it's now a lot more accessible to a lot more people. Because you, know, you have so many ways of getting your story out there. And um, I, I, in some ways, there are a lot of stories. So, you know, how do, how do you get people to want to read your story? But at the same time, um, there's so many stories out there. And I'm always amazed at how many ways the same plot can be told in a different way. And to me, that's so much fun. And people who kind of poo-poo the whole thing about genre you know, genre being formulaic and, you know, whatever the genre is that you choose. Um, I usually just say, you know, it's kind of like a football game. You know, the rules don't change. You've got a field, you've got players, you've got the same positions, but every game is going to be different. You tune in every week because the game is going to be different. The, the field conditions are going to be different. The weather, the skill makeup of the players, you know, all of the things, the crowd, you know, is, is going to be different. And so you I think you said put everybody in a room and let them not get to know each other. I just throw the players on a field, you know, all those people in the book I throw on the field and, and, and we can all do that. And I think that that's probably the biggest change is just accessibility. How many, how many ways people can tell their stories. I love that football analogy. That's just completely perfect and absolutely illustrates why uh, it, there's no formula. It's each individual person writing an individual story. John, I think the thing that's changed sort of in, in a different way for me internally, personally, about publishing since I've been writing since 2007, I think it is, um, is how much has to do with how, how, how all we can do as authors, all we can really control is writing the best book that we can write. So much in this world, especially in publishing world, is luck and timing and this, you know, impossible to predict being at the right place at the right time with the right person who loves your book. There's nothing you can do about luck and timing and the universe and, and how things happen except to have the best book you can write and be open and ready for an opportunity and to be honestly uh, honestly happy when friends succeed because everyone, everyone can succeed and everyone will get a turn. Um, and when you finish reading Karen's book, you can read mine and then you can read someone else's and then you can read someone else's. So it's just, um, it's very difficult to write a book it's very difficult to be traditionally published. There's almost nothing more gloriously satisfying than having a book that people love, but it's, but it's completely unpredictable what's going to happen. So I've learned to try to 
know how much I control can control, which is very little, and just see what happens with the rest. And there's something about longevity. So, you know, like you, we've we've both written a lot of books, and you get to the point. I think I don't know if everybody goes through this, but I got I was in a place in my career where I thought every book had to be better than the one before it, and it was I w- it was an amazing amount of pressure. You know, and and that's something that changed personally. Uh, you know, as 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 I, you know, forayed my way into publishing, um, then I had a, an editor who wisely said, "Your book doesn't have to be better than the one before. It has to be as good, and it has to make your readers happy." Mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, okay," and that just kind of puts a different perspective on it. I'm not always trying to outdo myself. Because I'm I'm my own worst critic, you know. I, I'm not always trying to beat myself. Um, I'm just trying to create a book people will love, and that's going to happen differently every time. The character is going to be a little different. This the scenery is going to be a little bit different. But when it comes down to it, you get people who have an emotional stake, whether it's a psychological thriller, whether it's police procedural. Characters have a personal stake in what happens in the end, um, and you know that's going to make every book different is the character. I can't believe how quickly an hour has flown by um, before we have to let you both go. If you would like, and this is up to you, can you tell us what's next for you as an author, what we can expect, and how readers can learn more about you and your books, what social media platforms you might be on? Um, Well, I have just finished the um, the second book in the San Diego series. So it's Kit and Sam again and uh, in their adventure. And then I, I have my next book that comes out is the second in my New Orleans series. And it is called Beneath Dark Waters. And it comes out in August. And I hang out on Twitter, kind of, sort of. I'm more of a kind of a guerrilla Twitter person. I'm there and I'm gone. Uh, <laughs> which to me is like Twitter is perfect for people who are, you know, have uh, attention deficit disorder. You just go in, you say hi to people, then you can leave. Um, And, uh, you know, of course, Facebook and everything else. So I'm still trying to figure out the Instagram. I I think I might, that might be a little bit past my, my creativity, but uh, Facebook and Twitter for the most part. And I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. You can find me um, on all of those, sadly, um, way too much time spent on those, but it is fun, especially these days, to connect with people uh, on social media. Also through my website, if you come to my website, hankphilippyryan.com and click on contact, it comes right to me. Uh, My newest book, The House Guest, is just out. It's been out for just two weeks now, and I have to tell you that after six days, it went into a second printing. So if you buy a book from uh, Poisoned Pen, you do have first editions and yeah. those, are, those are going to be gone very mm-hmm. soon. So I'm really, really thrilled about that. My next book comes out this time next year um, and it's in editing now and it is called One Wrong Word and it's about a crisis management person, consultant, a crisis management crisis, I'm going to have to learn how to say it by next year, and that's going to be a problem, about a crisis management consultant who makes her living by molding people's opinions, and then what does she do when she's trying to save her own reputation because of a lie? So it's called One Wrong Word and comes out next year. Well, that sounds fascinating, both titles, um, both books. 
Uh, what a truly fabulous conversation. The Poison Pen has been graced with Karen Rose, whose new book is Cold-Blooded Liar, and Hank Felipe Ryan, whose new book is The House Guest. And we're delighted that they were able to take some time to uh, visit with us virtually. We'd like to thank those tuning in to another author chat at the Poison Pen Bookstore. Thank you both. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated, please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.